Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, David Denhan, and uh, I am your guest pastor this morning. I'm glad to be here. This is uh, a place where my good friend Tony Meyer serves as your pastor, and uh, he mentioned to me quite a while ago that he would be taking vacation. And uh, that was about the time when I left pastoral ministry in a congregation in Jenison, uh, where I'd been serving for 18 years and joined up with a ministry of our denomination called Pastor Church Resources. And um, so I've been working with them for the last so five or six months. And we come alongside of pastors and churches that are in struggle or in crisis or in transition or pastors and churches that are doing well and want to learn how to do ministry a little bit better. And it's our honor and our privilege to uh, walk with them and, uh, and help them along to the next point in their life in ministry. So as I was getting ready for this this morning, I kept getting emails from uh, a guy called Matt, and uh, Tony had mentioned to me that uh, his daughter was getting married to the worship guy at the church. And I kept getting emails from Matt. Um, this is when you need to show up, and this is when you need to kind of get to the mic, you know, put the mic on and stuff. And so I just assumed that Matt was the one getting married. Um, and I sent him an email in response one day, and I said, here's what I'm preaching on, the hard work of waiting. We'll be going into Mark 5. We're going to camp there for a while, to use Renee's language. Um, and by the way, congratulations on your upcoming wedding. <laughs> he sent me an email back and said, um, no, 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 that's, that's Andy <laughs> who's getting married. Uh, so my apologies to Matt and Andy. And Aaron, you're around somewhere as well. <laughs> you are. Uh, glad we got that straightened away. Well, friends, I'd love to have you join me uh, in Mark chapter 5 as we together figure out, uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit, what it is that God wants us to, to do and to be this coming week and this coming month, this coming year, and for the rest of our lives together. Um, this is a wonderful text. Mark 5, somebody called it once the Encyclopedia of Hopeless Cases. There's about three stories that Mark gets started with. Um, there's a story that we're not going to read this morning. It's the first one at the top of Mark 5. It's the story of Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee from his home area, the area of the faithful Jews, to uh, the area of the pagans. You might call it pagan land. And, uh, and he heals uh, somebody possessed with a demon over there. And then he comes back across the lake by boat with his disciples, and that's about where we pick up the story in this encyclopedia of hopeless cases here in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And I think that was a pretty common experience for Jesus. People wanting to be with him, to hear him, to see him, maybe see a, a miracle or two or three or ten. And then one of the synagogue leaders, one of the pastors of the synagogue there in, um, in uh, Capernaum, and by the way, this is a big, this is a big synagogue, and the synagogue is the community center. It is the um, institution of higher learning. It is the church for worship. It is all these kinds of things. So a, a synagogue leader is a big deal in that culture. This is the mayor, the 
the head pastor, all kinds of things all rolled up into one. So this is a big deal. His name is Jairus, and he came, and when he saw Jesus, and here's the shocker, he fell at Jesus' feet. And he earnestly pleaded with him, my little daughter is dying. We learn later in the text that his little daughter is about 12 years old. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. That little detail is going to be important here in just a little bit. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. It's interesting that the, the little girl that Jesus is about to heal is 12, and the woman that presents herself now has been bleeding for 12 years. Mark raises that for us to think about together. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, if I just get to that little piece on the hem of his garment, that's the symbol of authority. And you go back into the Old Testament, you learn some of these things about Hebrew uh, clothing. There's a, there's a place on, on the garment of an important person that represents his authority. If I just touch that, she said to herself, I will be healed. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Speaking of feeling things, we turn now to Jesus. Mark tells us this in verse 30. At once Jesus felt something. He realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the, in the crowd, this crowd of people that's kind of hemming him in and following very closely. Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any longer? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe. Trust me. Don't be afraid. And he did not let anyone from the crowd follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. These are customary features of Jewish grieving at a funeral. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little child, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Before we launch a little bit here, I'd like to lead you in prayer. Let's go to God. Father God, we've heard the word that you've given to us here in Mark chapter 5. And now our hope and our prayer is that by your spirit you would give us the spectacles we need to read and understand so that these printed words become words upon our heart, upon our mind, upon our hands, and upon our feet so that by this word and its action within us you are honored by our eyes and our ears and our hands and our feet. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my friends, I'd like to talk with you this morning a little bit about uh, waiting, the hard work of waiting. And I'm wondering if you could help me out this morning just by maybe shouting out a couple of places where you have seen people waiting. You've seen them kind of biding their time, waiting for something to happen. Where do you see people wait, typically? I'm sorry? The DMV, yes. <laughs> the DMV. Word is that you can now call ahead of time and uh, give, you know, they give you an appointment, but I remember waiting in the DMV for 45 minutes to an hour, renew my license. Yeah, any other places? Where do you wait? Where do you see people waiting? I'm sorry? Hospitals, yes. Waiting for a doctor's appointment, waiting for um, to get better, waiting for the nurses, waiting for your next meal, um, waiting for a sign of hope. Yeah, where else do you wait or see people waiting? At an amusement park, Cedar Point. You know, I've never yet been to Cedar Point, and part of the reason is I hate waiting. Where else do you see people waiting? I'm sorry? The airport, yes. Waiting for the next flight. And some people try to redeem the time by getting their laptops up and running and getting some emails out, um, playing video games or whatever. But yeah, airports are places of waiting, sometimes a long bit of waiting. Where else do you see people waiting? Nursing homes, yeah. Waiting, 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 waiting. Waiting, you could say, um, for their friends to arrive or their relatives. Or you could say waiting for the day to come. The day. Yeah. You know, in our text here in Mark chapter 5, Mark introduces us to two people who are waiting. In this encyclopedia of hopeless cases, Mark shows us uh, this synagogue leader. His name is Jairus. And he has been waiting for Jesus. And I just want to let you in on a little bit of an insight into what kind of waiting this probably was. Jairus, being the synagogue leader, was a, a higher up in the Jewish faith, right? So uh, people in the community looked to him for wisdom, for authority, for religious rulings, and all that kind of good stuff. Do you think Jairus was the kind of man who was generally used to waiting for people? Probably not. And uh, so that made this waiting maybe a little difficult for Jairus, right? 
the other thing I want you to be aware of regarding his waiting is that uh, Jesus was away from the place of the holy Jews, the pious Jews, and where was he? He was across, you read this in chapter 5, verse 1, he was across the sea in the region of the Decapolis, pagan land, where all the non-Jews were. So Jairus is probably aware of that, and he's probably a little disgusted at the fact that uh, his daughter is over here in Holy Land dying, and Jesus, meanwhile, is hanging out with all the pagans in pagan land. Doesn't he know that there are people here who deserve his attention a lot more than people over there? And doesn't he know that my daughter, by the way, is on her deathbed? He, she's desperately, desperately sick. So a number of reasons why Jairus' waiting would be difficult. And maybe you can picture him there by his daughter's bedside, pacing up and down, waiting for word that Jesus has actually returned from the other side of the lake and is ready now to come to his house and, and try to heal his daughter. That's the first person that Mark introduces us to as he helps us to think about waiting. The second person that Mark introduces us to is, uh, is this woman with a bleeding condition. And the text doesn't tell, that, uh, tell this to us, but my conjecture, as I've done a little, little bit of thinking about this, is that this woman is not actually an elderly woman at all. I, I, I suspect this woman is probably about 24 or 25 or 26, and that her bleeding began when she began to enter puberty. And something occurred within her body so that the normal kind of things that happen in a, in, a, in a young girl's body began to go awry in all kinds of nasty ways, including bleeding. Bleeding in ways that she didn't expect or want. And you know what it says in the Old Testament about people who bleed, that they are unholy and impure and unclean and should not have a part in any of the culture or the society or the community of the, of the holy Jews. So this woman's condition is not just a physical hardship for her. This woman's condition is also a banishment from her community. And, and for her, it means that she's not able to have regular contact with the people in her life that she loves. So her waiting, too, is a difficult kind of waiting. Which raises the question, how good are you at waiting? How good are you at waiting in the airport or the hospital or the DMV or any of the other places where we spend time looking at our watches or looking at the clock and hoping that time would go a little bit faster? How good are you at doing that? would say that probably many of us do very little waiting these days, right? Uh, we have devices and apps and um, conveniences that make waiting uh, assume less and less a role in our lives. We don't have to wait for much these days, except in the places that we've named together just a few minutes ago. I mean, if I want to get to a new place where I've never been before, do I haul out a map any longer and unfold it and try to identify where that spot is? No. Where do I go? Google Maps. Directions to 2450 Ivanrest Avenue. And in about a half a second, Google has it, and all I gotta do is hit, is hit start, and it 
gives me directions. I don't have to wait for uh, finding out how to get to a place. I don't have to wait for much, and I'm, I'm guessing the same is true for you, so that the waiting that we do have to do in life, that waiting becomes even more difficult because we're not used to it. Uh, we don't do a lot of it these days. And when we do have to wait, my friends, we see very little redeeming value in it. Waiting is when us control freaks are not in control. Waiting is when us control freaks are, uh, are not in control. So when I have to wait for my computer to boot up and I see that infuriating little circle going around and around and around like that, I start to go a little crazy and get a little angry. And, uh, and here's the interesting thing I've noticed about myself. Maybe you've noticed it about yourselves as well. That in those moments when you most believe you should have control, in the little inconveniences of life that kind of crop up, when traffic is slow or the computer is slow or whatever, in those moments when you're forced to wait, you get angrier than in those moments when you're waiting for big things, like for a birthday to come up uh, or for an anniversary to come up or a promotion at work. Ironically enough, in my life, and maybe it's the same thing with, uh, with all of you, when I have to wait for little tiny things, I get more ticked off than when I'm waiting for the big stuff. And I think it has everything to do with the level of control that I assume I should have in those moments. And when I don't have that control is when I get angry. I wonder how common that experience is. Waiting is when us control freaks are not in control. There's a Bible text I'd like to take you to for a moment if you've got your Bibles open yet. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. And it is a place where we see that we are not the only ones who wait. Paul is talking to his beloved brothers and sisters in, uh, in Rome. He's not been there yet. He will be there in a little bit at some point. Um, but in, his, in this majestic letter to them, he's talking now about the role of the Holy Spirit and what the future looks like. And at this point in his letter, he writes in verse 19, the creation does, does what? The creation, the creation waits. The, the trees are, are waiting. The landscape waits. The core of the earth waits. The sky waits. Polar bears wait. Human beings wait. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for, for Jesus to return and to make clear who, who are followers of his. Creation waits. Jump down to verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This is not an easy waiting that creation does. This is not simply a looking at your watch or your, or your clock and just kind of assuming that something will happen eventually and being okay with that. This is painful waiting that creation does. This is hard waiting. This is waiting that's been broken by sin at the fall, and creation has been waiting ever since then for some restoration to happen. And I think about Renee's prayer a moment ago where she mentioned Nicaragua 
and Daniel Ortega's presidency there and the shock forces that represent him and make sure to quell all of the rebellions occurring within the nation and the people being so offended every time another quashing of protest happens that they, more protests are generated and more uh, pro-government forces are brought to bear and there's pain and there's angst and there's suffering and it's, it's a version of the waiting that takes place within all of creation for the restoration to, to occur. And I think about people who are in the hospital, who are, who are waiting for a cure for whatever it is that has brought them to the hospital, or, or for people who are not in the hospital but who have been given a diagnosis maybe last week, maybe last year, maybe last decade, that they have Parkinson's disease, or perhaps they have cancer, and they're waiting for something to occur that will enable them to rise above that diagnosis and assume a posture of contentedness and, uh, and, and stability in life. It's a version of the waiting that creation is doing that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 8. Waiting. All kinds of expressions of what it is that uh, we are doing here in Mark chapter 5 with these two people that Mark introduces us to, this, this waiting. And maybe you can think of other examples of people waiting and, and, and think of them as, as expressions of this hard waiting that creation is doing, this hard waiting as in the pains of childbirth. This is so difficult what we do. This is why this is hard work. We no longer have the control we want to have that God has entrusted to us. Sin has taken over, has twisted so much of life. Mark in this text uh, shows us Jesus responding to this waiting. Except I want to have you note something. Uh, the, the two people that Mark introduces us to in this text, the two of them are are waiting faithfully. I mean, think about this for a second. Uh, Jairus, the synagogue leader, as, we, as I said before, he's not a man accustomed to waiting for anybody, and yet he's waiting for Jesus to return. And as soon as he hears word that Jesus has come back across the lake, he, in spite of his authority, uh, in spite of the fact that other people wait for him, he goes to the lake to find Jesus, to the lake shore. It's a little bit like the father in the parable of the, of the prodigal son, the last guy you'd expect to hitch up his robes and run out to the prodigal son. This synagogue leader, this mayor, this CEO of the synagogue, this lead pastor runs through town to get to Jesus because he wants Jesus to come back to his house and heal his daughter. He believes that Jesus can. His waiting is faithful waiting. And then there's the woman. She's terrified. She knows that she has no place in this community, that she has no place in this crowd that's pressing around Jesus, and yet she believes if I touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And so she finds a way to sneak up to Jesus, just touch the hem of his garment, and inside she can feel the pain disappearing and the discomfort disappearing and the bleeding ending She's been waiting faithfully for Jesus, trusting that when she connects with him, he really will bring her the healing that she's looking for. 
Now she's been healed, and I'd like in your mind as best as you can to picture the scene. There's Jesus, right? He's at the front of this crowd heading to Jairus' house. Jairus is probably next to him, providing him with directions. It's, it's this way, Jesus, and that way. We'll take a left at the next corner. It's Peter, James, and John, uh, Jesus' closest disciples. It's the other disciples as well. It's all the crowd there that has gathered that wants to see and hear Jesus, maybe see a miracle or two or ten. And there's this woman who's just touched Jesus, and now she's slinking away because she doesn't want anybody to recognize that she's been there has broken Jewish law, and now will bring her before Jairus and the rest of the synagogue's leadership to account for her sin. Jesus stops. Like right now, he stops. And if you've ever seen dominoes standing in a line and you hit that first one and they all start to tumble then you can picture what happens in this crowd of people pressing against Jesus, and Jesus stops like right now, and the people bump up against him, and the people behind them bump up against them, and the people behind them, I mean, they're all so close together, they can't help but just bump up against one another, and and maybe some of them fall down, in fact. And Jesus turns around, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are incredulous. What do you mean, Jesus? Can't you see all these people jostling around? There's a couple of the folks on the floor here because we've been so tight and so close, we're just tripping each other up. What do you mean, who touched you, Jesus? What do you mean, who touched you? No, no, no. I, I want to know who touched me, Jesus says. I want to know who touched me. Now, here's my question to you. Why does Jesus stop? Why does Jesus stop at this point in his journey to Jairus' house? The woman's been healed already. He doesn't need to stop. And in fact, all of the people there don't want him to stop. Does Jairus want to take up any more time before Jesus gets to his daughter? And these disciples, they're thinking, Jesus, come on, buddy, we got to get going at Jairus' house. If we impress this guy, we can serve our cause very, very well. We're scoring all of the right kinds of points, Jesus. Come on, let's go. And all the people who are there are waiting for a miracle to happen. They they don't want to have Jesus stop and just kind of find out who touched him. This is crazy. If they were all wearing watches, they'd all be looking at their watches and going like this to Jesus. Let's get going. Come on. Chop, chop. Jesus stops. Doesn't have to. The woman's been healed and is facing all kinds of pressure to keep on going. Everybody wants him to go. Why does he stop? The answer to that question arises in what Jesus does. The very next thing he does he waits for the woman to present herself. And he just waits. Just waits. There's a little war going on inside the woman. You know that, right? There's a little war going on inside of her. Do I, 
do I, do I respond and present myself? Or do I play it safe and disappear? You just sense there's a little war going on inside the woman's heart. Jesus is just there waiting. Everybody's looking at their watches. And she finally appears. And he speaks with her. He doesn't reject her, doesn't send her away, doesn't say, what were you thinking, you unclean person, touching me, a holy rabbi? Doesn't do any of that stuff. He speaks with her. He's, in fact, he calls her something. Does it say, can you read that in your text? What does he call her? Daughter? In the original it appears, daughter, your faith has healed you. I mean, Jesus is the one who healed her, but her access to his healing has been her faith, her trust. If I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Jesus doesn't have to stop, my friends, but he does because he has one more healing to accomplish in her life. It's not just the physical healing that he wants to make sure happens. It's not just the restoration to her community that's important to him. He wants to regain something that he lost at the fall when all of creation fell and began its painful waiting he wants to regain community with the people that he loves, the people who are made in his very image. He wants to regain that. And this little conversation there on the road to Jairus' house is a little prelude to what will happen when he goes to the cross and establishes that reconnection by dying and then rising. That's why he wants to talk to her. He wants her back, just like he wants you back and the people in the neighborhood around the church here back, the people in Nicaragua and in Myanmar and in India back. So he stops, talks to her, heals her. He also heals the synagogue leader's daughter. We don't have time this morning to really get into all of that, but he makes so clear to Jairus, doesn't he, that his waiting in faith has been worth it, that his waiting in faith is now rewarded, that all of the trust that he might have put into his reputation, his position, his status, his stature, his authority, any trust he might have put there was misplaced, and he was right all along to trust that Jesus would bring to him exactly what he wanted and needed, just as the woman was right to trust that Jesus would bring to her the healing that she needed. Don't trust in chariots or princes, as Psalm 2 talks about, verse 7. Don't trust in your status, your position, your authority, Jairus. Don't trust in doctors the doctors that you've been consulting with for 12 years, woman, they all have their place. They all have their place. We need the medical community. My wife's a nurse. My daughter's a nurse. My other daughter's studying to be a nurse. I love the medical community. But who do you trust when it comes down to it? Who do you trust when the doctor walks in with a sheet of paper in his hand and has a look on his face that says, what I'm about to tell you will change your life. Who do you trust when you're in the airport waiting 
and you've got your stuff going on and you're trying to redeem the time by maximizing all, getting out as many emails as you possibly can, figuring that if I just redeem my time here, then the time will be well spent. And meanwhile, God might be saying to you, would you calm down? Would it kill you to spend 10 minutes with nothing else on your brain except for me and my role in your life? Would you wait faithfully? Don't trust in the promotion that you're waiting for. Oh, it, it's coming, and it'll be good. But my son, why are you waiting for that when I've been here all along? Who do you trust? And what are you waiting for? In this text from Mark chapter 5, Mark is inviting us to watch Jesus bring an end to two people's waiting because he wants all of us to understand that our best waiting, our most, our most glorious waiting is always, always, always going to be the waiting that we do for him. Whether that waiting comes in the expression of 10 minutes in the airport focusing on him rather than our email list, or when the doctor comes with a sheet of paper in his hand saying to yourself before you hear a word out of his mouth, Lord, I place my, my life in your hands. I trust that whatever this doctor says is your will, and I am, I'm, I'm good with it, or I will learn to be good with it. Are you content to wait in that way? Mark, Mark wants us to. That's why he brings these stories into his gospel at this point, early in Jesus' ministry. He wants to, us to learn how to wait faithfully how to wait patiently, how to wait with an eye towards God and his sufficiency, to wait with the power of the Holy Spirit rather than assuming that I have to get myself out of this jam. And my friends in Christ, we live in a world that desperately needs people who are good at waiting because this world waits in desperation this world waits in fear and trembling. This world waits wondering if there is any reason whatsoever to hope. And when it comes across this, the saints of God, the, the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, those who have found their life in him, and, and sees them really good at, at obeying and trusting, trusting and obeying, you know that old song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way? When it sees people who are committed to Jesus Christ and who, are, who live this way, they may well get a sense that there's something to come that is worth waiting for. That's what God is calling you to this morning here in Mark 5. Wait with patience and with trust in him in a way that equips the world. When it sees you doing that, equips the world to wait expectantly, not out of despair. Would you pray with me? Our Father God, our hearts go out to all the places in the world where there are people waiting in suffering. 
to people in Nicaragua, to people in Iowa recovering from the hurricanes, to people in hospitals waiting for a diagnosis or having a diagnosis waiting for the cure, to people in airports and in traffic and sitting in front of their computers and at the DMV thinking that waiting is just a waste of time. Our hearts go out to them because we have one who is worth waiting for and whose presence within us has changed everything. Oh God, would you increase our faith? We believe, would you help us in our unbelief? We wait, would you help us when we wait impatiently? Lead us to this deep, deep trust to know this Jesus who wants to bring us full restoration and who calls us to wait either for tomorrow or next week when the, heal, the healing will come or for the life that is yet to come when full healing will take place. Would you lead us to wait well for your glory and the gifting of our, for our world? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.